Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm excited to see so many sweet faces, some who've traveled miles and miles and miles to be here this morning. Thank you. Uh, let's just open our time this morning in prayer as we need the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us, and by your great love and your blood, you have redeemed us to belong to you. God, what an amazing truth. And I pray this morning, as those who have been redeemed, that we might come under your word this morning. Let us not come with preconceived ideas or understandings, but God, let us be humble in heart, and may we submit ourselves to you. God, we need you this morning to come and help us to make your word alive, that the Holy Spirit would give us deep understanding into these words. Lord, that we have heard these before, these words. I pray by your Holy Spirit, though, this morning, that he will make it new. He will make it fresh. And Lord, that as we leave this morning, we might be more in love with you, our Savior. That our affections might grow for you this morning as we dig into your word and learn more of you and the provisions that you have made for wicked hearts. And um, Lord, we just look forward to what you are going to do in us this morning and through us. And Lord, as we uh, come to your word again, may you just be glorified, exalted in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, each week we look at our notebooks, don't we? And uh, to remind ourselves of the purpose that we're here. What is the Wellspring purpose? And we want to keep it before us always to know how we're doing, to make sure we're on aim, we're on target. So let's turn that over. And would you read it with me this morning, uh, our Wellspring purpose? To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So that's why we come each week to Wellspring. I've heard it said, um, why do we keep training? Why do the elders keep bringing us back, encouraging us to be here? Well, we look back at that purpose, and we meet together to encourage one another, to live gospel-trans lives, to be lifted up, to grow more in love with him, that we might more fully glorify the Lord. Through our lives, we see the battle um, with our sin through his word, and we see him more fully, and we're moved to worship through the word. We preach the gospel to our hearts daily as we spend time in his word, and we're humbled um, and grateful that he would save rebels as ourselves. And then we come together, and we have conversations with one another as woman to woman, conversations with our husband, our children, our roommates, and we build one another up in Christ, and we strengthen the church. That's our ministry. That's one of our ministries, right? To be, And that's why we're being equipped and encouraged, so that we can have those conversations, and then we can remind one another of the good news of Christ. And it's a vital ministry that, and that each one of us is very vital to and important in. So we want to keep that aim before us. And so moving from the purpose, then we have tools to help us to do that. And the first one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, in particular, the gospel. Shepherding my heart is supplying what my heart needs at any given moment. In Psalm 119, we hear the heart of a man who loves God and who loves God's word and who is earnest for obedience. In, one, in verse 10, it says, With all of my heart I have sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. What he's saying is, God, I've sought you with all of my heart, in my innermost being, with all that I am, I've sought you. I've pursued you, and I've searched for you through the word. And what does that produce? 
He cries out, don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me forget them. Don't let me stroll away into a life of disregarding them and disobeying them. In seeking God wholeheartedly, he sees the danger of wandering from God's word. I see it in my own life, too. The psalmist sees the value of God's word and necessity of his own heart to be near it. And we're going to learn much more about that today and the weeks coming. Well, wandering is a pretty passive um, activity, right? Perhaps you don't have a clear destination, or it's like following a child who follows wherever he wishes, where his eyes catch, and he wanders this way and that. And sometimes missing a day or two with the Lord leads to a week or two of meeting with the Lord, and we find that we are wandering as well. Or there's danger in being in God's Word every day, but not engaging with Him there. We read the Word to check it off the list, but we leave and we have no idea what we've just read. Or we haven't worshipped the Lord while we've been there. Our minds are wandering the whole time that we are reading. We're going to see in our lesson today that we are vulnerable and we are easily deceived. And we need to be near the Lord. It is good for us to be near to the Lord. So as we begin, those who have been born again, we now can be women who seek God with all of our heart. We have a new desire for him, right? So we must guard our hearts from wandering from the word as a child wanders. We cultivate a love for God by the daily discipline of meeting with him in his word, of seeking him there, to know him and to worship him, to humble ourselves before him, to be laid bare before him, spiritually speaking. We can't love him if we don't know him, and we know him through his word. In this unregenerate man state, we were lost in our sins. We were alienated from God, even hostile toward him, it says in Colossians 1. There was no wandering. There was not hostility. In fact, we were running hard away from God and his word. But God, because of his great love for us, made us alive together with him. That is an amazing truth. And I want to just, um, again this morning, anew, just take that in and think on that. We can know God through his word. It's, it's his very words breathed out to us, right? By him. Shepherding our hearts is seeking God in meaningful interaction with God in his word through prayer. The word of God is his communication to us. When we talk of shepherding our hearts, it's not constrained to time. It's supplying what my heart needs at any given moment. It truly begins in our quiet time that we've set apart to be with him. But we must be careful to watch over this wayward heart all throughout the day. This is a 24 responsibility, and it's a privilege because of what God has done for us, what he's made possible for us, that we can come to him. So we don't want to spend time in the morning and then uh, live the way that we want to the rest of the day, right? We want to, that our lives glorify him in every way, that it would be, we would be changed through that time. God's grace in the gospel has made it a reality that we can even do this. We're no longer slaves to our sin, and we are not a slave to aimless wandering either. We have been given victory, and so we pursue him. Discipline, too, the home, is where she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. If we're feeding and nourishing our hearts, realigning those wayward hearts with his truth, learning of God's character, and growing in our affection for him, we have much more to offer to those in our home and those God, that God brings to us. The words of wisdom will be on our tongue. As we soak in the gospel ourselves, 
will be ready to encourage others in the good news, applying it to every and all circumstances that come along. I can build up my husband or my children, my roommates, my parents, to right thinking about God, which leads to worship and greater obedience to his word. But if I'm not intentional about ministering to those in my home this way, with my heart for God and the gospel, then I can easily wander, can't I? I simply don't take time to minister to those in my home, laying down my own agenda, my own interest for the interests of others. This caring for those in my home doesn't just happen. I must draw them out with questions and conversation. This allows us together to perhaps to see what's going on in their hearts as well as my own. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. To be thoughtful and to be prayerful about how we live in our homes and our closest relationships where lives rub up against each other every day, right? Where we, there are often so many needs and so many opportunities to deny ourselves throughout the day. So many of you have little ones. And to extend grace and to serve. Ministry and service in our home done with the heart for God and the gospel are opportunities to display what God has done in us already, right? And there are so many opportunities every single day to display what he has done. And that brings glory to him. And then discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she then steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We've said it before, these are not happening, um, uh, these disciplines are happening simultaneously, right? They're not happening, we finish with one and then you on to two and on to three, but they're all happening at the same time. As I'm faithfully caring for my own heart and those in my home, God will bring many opportunities to encourage women around you. And don't you find yourself drawn to women who are, have, that you have that sense that they're drawing near to the Lord? There's a, there's a kindness about them. There's a gentleness about them. It's imperative that each one of us be that kind of woman to one another. We'll be mutually encouraging one another. And that's how God has designed the body to work. So it's exciting. And we always want to caution one another not to leapfrog, jump over our own hearts or those in our home. Too often I see that um, there are those who... Uh, want to uh, serve in the church or disciple others. But homes are not in order because they're not first maybe faithfully shepherding their own heart or ministering in their homes. We must caution against being too busy, doing good things, but not carefully caring for those in our homes. We want to care well so that we display God's glory in our homes. What a joy it is to be about the work that God has called us to do. There's a lot of really good things that we can do to choose time, to spend our time, but not all are necessary, or they're not all best for us or those whom God has given to us to care for. It's easy to fill every minute of every day and be there physically, perhaps, in our home, but not there fully. Does that make sense? We want to be women who don't passively take on more and more while without realizing or even desiring to do it too busy or too tired to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those in our home. And so we live out the one another's in scripture. The whole church is strengthened. And that means together we better display the fullness of Christ. 
So we're going to move on to our lesson today, and it is going to be a fast pace. I did that uh, mighty, mighty God we save, hoping we get our juices flowing and blood flowing, because it's going to be a, um, a lot of scripture, and we're going to go through the word I was going to count yesterday from front to back uh, four, maybe five times, um, and you'll, it'll make sense as we go. So hang on with me. There's a lot of verses to look up. Look them up if you want to. The scriptures are all there if you want to look them up later, whatever, however best you can um, focus on the lesson, um, whatever works for you. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what the gospel does for our hearts, for our inner man, and we saw the gospel makes us into new creations, right? Christ has died, that we are now new creations, and we can look forward to our glorification as believers when we will be in an unmixed condition, the sinless condition, and we will be at home with the Lord. But God in his great wisdom and goodness and sovereignty has made a way for us to be born again into new creations, and and he has left us in a mixed condition. He certainly could have changed us from the unregenerate man directly into glorification and made us spotless and perfect. But... He has chosen to glorify himself through our mixed condition. That's encouraging to me. Do you see that we are in the process of progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ? We must be dependent on him. In our mixed condition, his glory is seen, and his power is displayed through our weakness. We often sing, all I have is Christ, and the last verse says, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone, and live so all that might all." and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boast is you. His power is seen in you and me, and others see that I am weak of myself, right? I'm incapable of anything good, and when you see grace in one another, it is cause to worship (coughs) you. He is displayed in us. And we ought to be encouraging one another with those words. I see God's grace in you by this. So in our lesson, Gospel Implications of My Heart, we talked about the hope we have because of the conversion events and gospel realities. We learned about new abilities and new desires. And we saw that there's an ongoing weakness of the new creation. That that although the old is gone, nonetheless we carry a residue of weakness and sin. And that's the mixed condition we talked about, just to review a little bit. But now we are in a position of great hope. Because we can now fight against that sin that we used to master, that used to master us. A slave doesn't battle her master, she serves her master. And so the fact that as new creations, we can now participate in that process of sanctification and that we are growing in our desire and our ability to battle sin by God's grace is evidence that we have a new master, a good master, Christ himself. It is then in this, our pursuit to know our master, that we humbly submit to and obey our master because he's been so gracious to redeem us, to save us to himself. Without him, we had no hope. It's not that I obey because it's the right thing to do, or outward conformity to rules, but his love compels me to obey him, to submit to him, and to love him, to serve him. And so we're going to do that biblical survey of the heart. 
we to this because God has a lot to say about us. <coughs> our flesh would like us to believe that our hearts aren't so bad. There's always somebody who's a little worse than we are. We're pretty savvy to our hearts. Well, we want to listen together today because that's not what God's word says about our hearts. By understanding his evaluation, we position ourselves to benefit from God's word as he designed it to be. It is just one of the ways he cares for his children. There's a story that Scott uses in Bill, and I'm going to kind of try to condense this. There was a four-day-old baby born with, uh, it's called ectopia cordis. His heart was outside of his heart, had developed outside of his heart. And it was in a remote village in India. And he was rushed by his father and grandfather, 24-hour trip, 800 miles to the capital, in desperate need to save the life of this child. The biggest challenge for this baby was his heart. His only hope was that this doctor would get that baby's heart back into place inside of him. Well, spiritually speaking, our biggest challenge is our hearts as well. The baby's biggest challenge wasn't his parents or that he would live in poverty for the rest of his life, but it was his heart. And the same for us. Our greatest challenge is not our upbringing or our wealth or status, but our own heart before the Lord, our spiritual heart before him. The baby's only hope was for that doctor, right? It was something he could not do himself. This baby could not do himself. He was dependent upon the doctor. We are born, all of us, with a need for a new heart, and we are incapable of helping ourselves. We are dependent upon Christ to do that for us. Well, everybody was focused on this baby's life, of course, and on his heart. And we need to be, if we haven't already, entering into a lifestyle where we are constantly concerned about our heart. Primarily my own heart, right? Not so that I become myoptic and are focused on myself, but because we grow in our understanding of the true condition of our hearts. And we want to appreciate. Understanding that helps me appreciate and be thankful for, grateful for, what Christ did for us on the cross. It humbles me and reminds me of who I once was. So we're going to begin our study today taking a look at what God wants us to know about the heart. What the heart is, its qualities, what it understands, its call and its need. And we're going to look at all of that so that we're spurred on to embrace and pursue and rely upon that which God has provided for our hearts. So take out your outline. The heart is a little survey. I'm just going to try to follow along with you. So you're going to see different categories there. And within each category, we're going to start in the Old Testament and walk through the word into the New Testament. And like I said, we're going to do that several times this morning. I hope and I pray that you will find this really beneficial. It's a lot to take in, but um, I do. I just see great profit in that. And the reason we do that is because God gradually unfolded his revelation to us. God revealed to Moses exactly what he wanted his people, to Israel, to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with him. But we know that he built on that, and he continued to reveal himself to us. So we want to walk through these subjects the way God set it up in his word. It's good for us to feel the weight of the wickedness of the heart, and I pray it will be as if you've heard this for the first time. 
that the weight of our sin would be felt afresh so that we can freshly um, be grateful for and thankful for and deepen that love for Christ. Know this was our heart before God rescued us and gave us a new heart. It also serves as a reminder to us of the evil that still remains, the presence of sin in our hearts. You see, when Christ died, there was a power of sin that was broken. The penalty was paid for by Christ, but there is a presence of sin that still remains. So number one, what is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? And Chris shared this on our last lesson as we studied through the gospel. It's, um, it's the inner man. It's you. It's summed up of who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, the physical, and then the inner part, the man. Sorry, the heart. The heart is the place in which God reveals himself to us first and foremost. The heart is the part of us that is addressed by God, where he evaluates us. The heart is the seat of doubt and hardness, as well as faith and obedience. The heart is the center of my emotions, my will, and my thoughts. It's the center of who we are. So every word, thought, desire, will, emotion come from the heart. And it's our wellspring theme verse. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We see this in the greatest command, that there's a lot of overlap between heart and mind, biblically. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus isn't dividing us up into four parts and saying, love God with each of those. Rather, there's overlap, and they are all describing who we are from the inside out. We often think of the heart as the emotional part of us, and the mind as the cognitive organ, but the Bible doesn't support that idea. The decisions and choices we make in life originate with that, what we love and what we desire, and it begins in the heart. There are over 750 references to the heart in God's word, and we're just going to look at a fraction of that this morning. In the greatest commandment, God uses heart, soul, strength, and mind to underscore that we are to love him completely, all out, with every essence of who we are, and that in overflowing into all that we do. It is the heart that loves God, who prays to God, who rejoices in God, turns to God, seeks God, trusts God, and yields to Him. What does God want from us? God wants wholehearted devotion to Him. God does His work first on the inner man, and that affects the whole man. Oftentimes, we're tempted to look at the outer man, relying on our own strength. This is simply moralism, looking good on the outside but having no lasting effect because the heart hasn't been changed. Man is naturally content with the outward part of religion, with outward morality, outward correctness. But the eyes of the Lord look much further. He regards our motives. It says in Proverbs 16.2, he weighs the spirit. And in Jeremiah 17.10, he says of himself, I, the Lord, am the searcher of the heart, the tester of the thoughts. So let's say that I, um, for several, I have an apple tree in my backyard, and for several years the apples mature, but they're dry and they're wrinkled and they're pulpy and brown, and they're no good. After several years, I decide that I'm going to fix this tree, and so I bring a bushel of red apples out, and I start stapling them to the branches. Obviously absurd, but I think I fixed my apple, my apple tree. Well, it's a good example of what we attempt to do with our own hearts, and um, sometimes the heart of our children. We focus on the behavior, the outward, right? And lose sight of the heart behind the behavior. We try to fix the apples of our appearance and behavior instead of addressing the serious problem of the heart, of the roots in the tree. 
So when we say heart, we're talking about you, right? Not just a part, but who you are, totally. So therefore the heart is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. Question two, what does scripture say about the human heart? At this point, we're speaking generally of the condition of the heart apart from new life in Christ. So just keep that in mind, and that's going to be true until we get to question six toward the end. But you will see in some verses that in this mixed condition we find ourselves, there's still a residue. You will see, um, we're going to recognize our hearts in some of the words that we look at, like, ooh, that sounds like me. But the overall thrust here is to show us our need for Christ and it ought to spur us on to ongoing need for the gospel and his word, right? Let's turn to Genesis 6-5. The word gives us a description of the human heart by way of explanation of what comes next. God gives us the account of Noah's ark here, and God's plan to destroy the whole earth with a flood. Verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So God is saying that every intent of the heart, any intention, any plan, purpose in his heart, nothing that doesn't have wickedness and evil saturating it. So in that one sentence, every, only, and continually, man's great wickedness is primarily a heart problem. So the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7, and it subsides in chapter 8, so they finally come out. Flip over to... Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He came out to worship. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So here it is, during worship, God is stating again what is still true of the human race, a repeat of what he said before the flood, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there are eight people now left on the face of the earth, and he's saying, as you worship me, as you come off the boat, there's still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. And the point is that the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart condition. But God had a plan. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin? Well, the obvious answer is no one, according to God. It was a rhetorical question. The stain of man's heart is so great that we don't have what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. And so we've seen that the heart is evil and that it's beyond our ability to cleanse it. Turn over now to the New Testament, Matthew 15. We're not going to read all of 1 through 20, um, but I'm going to give you a background. In verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes are very concerned about hand-washing, which is outer man. Jesus responds and says, here's the problem in verses 7 and 8. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. They are not concerned with their heart, are they, at all? And in verse 15, I'm sorry, yes, Matthew 15, 15. Peter says, explain the parable to us. And in verse 16, Jesus said, Are you still lacking understanding also? Do you not understand that everything goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, 
and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us that there's a source of defilement and corruption inside of us, and it's the heart as the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. And go a little bit further back in Romans 121. We're looking for what God has said about the condition of the heart. In verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. What is the proof of man's foolishness? It's this, that even though men knew something of God, they had no intent to honor him at a heart level. And that is foolish. And a foolish heart only plunges a person into spiritual darkness. So here's what we've seen already in just those five passages. Man's heart is evil. The heart is beyond our ability to cleanse it. It's the source of defilement within a person. It's his own heart. The foolish heart invites greater spiritual darkness. That's what God says about the heart. So when the world says, follow your heart, is that good? Is that wise? Is that a heart worth following? Absolutely not. Next is the heart alert to its devastating condition. And we're going to start back over. Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 16. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and your soul, that you will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new oil and your new wine. You will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So under the Mosaic Covenant, there were blessings for honoring God from the heart, from the inner man. There was a relationship between obedience and physical blessings and provision. But listen to what comes next in verse 16. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Why would Moses say beware after speaking of abundance and blessing? Because the heart is easily deceived, even when, maybe even more so, when surrounded by blessing. And that is why we, too, need to be cautious. In our mixed condition, we can easily be deceived. I need to be cautious of me, inwardly speaking. When everything is the way I like it, the way that I want it. Because the heart is easily deceived, even at its best, following God and obeying him. I looked up the definition of deceive yesterday. It's to be led astray, to be betrayed by giving false information to. So the heart is easily led astray, even when following God and obeying him. And it's often my own heart that does that. Jeremiah 17, 9, the familiar verse, listen again to what Jeremiah tells us about the heart. And he uses some pretty strong language here. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. And you notice, not just deceitful, but more deceitful than all else? And is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If we were to make a list of whatever we find in the, that's deceitful in this world, we would have a very long list in a really short amount of time. And Jeremiah is telling us that nothing can beat the heart out of the number one spot. Think about that. That's sick. And it's so sick. It's beyond our grasp. It's beyond compare. We can't even understand its condition fully. It's worse than we think. 
We saw in Deuteronomy that the heart is easily deceived, even at its best. And now in Jeremiah, we see that it's the most exceptional deceiver. Back to Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. We're going back into the New Testament to answer, is the heart alert to its devastating condition? Here in Romans 16, Paul is finishing out his instruction of his letter to the Romans by saying, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Why? Verse 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. If we are unsuspecting people, in the church, and that there are troublemakers causing divisions and creating obstacles in the church that we are naive to, our hearts can easily be deceived by them. Let me read James 1.26 to finish out this section. If anyone thinks he is religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So if I think I'm religious, but I don't have control over my words, what comes out of my mouth, it's evidence that my heart has been deceived by me, by my own heart. I'm self-deceived. So is the heart alert to its devastating condition? No, not apart from Christ. Do you see why we need him? And can it be alert to our own devastation by it's surrounded by and vulnerable to and filled with deception? How can it? And we've seen the warnings to believers as well. There is an ongoing residue of deceivability, even in us as new creations. Moving into question four, what is the highest call of the human heart? Go to Matthew 22. It's the New Testament repeat of Deuteronomy 6. Jesus takes that summary command of what the law was all about, and he repeats it to his disciples in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 38. Teacher, what, which is the greatest commandment of the law? What is the highest thing a good Jew like me should be about? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So this is the highest calling of the human heart, to love God all out. Let's see if we understand so far from Scripture. The heart that's evil, that's beyond cleansing, it's the source of defilement, it invites spiritual darkness, it's easily deceived, led astray even when it's at its best, it's an excellent deceiver itself, it can be deceived by others, and deceived by me, and it's the most central part of me before God the, God, the place that God examines. That heart is supposed to love God. And love him not with just part of it, but with all of it. God, do you know what you're asking of me? My heart is so filthy, and what you've called me to is so high. And so this leads into question five. What does God see does God see this whole predicament? And we're going to look at every verse in this section, but take time later to get a deeper and better understanding. So back in Deuteronomy 8, 1 and 12, 1 through 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And in 1 Kings 8, 38-39, Solomon was finished building the temple. 
He's praying for the people of Israel, appealing for God to hear their prayers. And in verse 39, he says, Forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of men. God definitely sees the heart. He sees every heart. He's the only one who knows every heart. So yes, God sees this predicament. He sees the discrepancy between the heart's condition and his command for us to love him with all of our heart. It says in Psalm 44, he knows the secrets of the heart. So let's turn to Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. God is the only one who sees it rightly. And I'm going to skip skipping to verse 12. If you say, see, we didn't know this, that's deception because they did know. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? We learn God weighs the heart. And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not re- render to man according to the work? Not only is God weighing the heart, not only is he testing man, but he is weighing each one so as to repay, to render to each one according to what he does or doesn't do. So yes, he sees the heart and he sees for the purpose of repaying. We looked at uh, Jeremiah 9 earlier. Verse 10 goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God not only knows the heart and knows mankind's predicament, but he searches each heart for the purpose of repaying what man deserves. So let's turn to the New Testament, Mark 2. I want to show you just how Jesus displayed his deity with the same kind of knowledge of the heart. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. In their hearts, they weren't talking out loud. And they were thinking, why does God, or why does man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Can you imagine what they were like? How did he know that? The scribes were just thinking these words, and yet Jesus knows their heart and their thoughts. And he responded to them as if they had spoken out loud. Jesus knows their hearts, and he responds to them on the basis of what was in their hearts. Jesus knows my heart, and he knows your heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let's see what Paul says. We're going to start reading in verse 3. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him by God. Paul is saying, I understand Scripture's analysis of the heart. The heart deceives. So even though I don't see anything wrong with my heart, if I don't see it, it doesn't mean I'm clean before God, because I can't see my own heart accurately, Right? But the Lord will come and disclose the motives of man's heart. And we want this. We need this. It's one of the reasons we want to be diligent about discipline one. It's through God's word that he shows us what is in our hearts. And in this we can root out what is evil, what displeases him, 
We participate in progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ. This brings glory to God, and we are saved to glorify him. So does God see the predicament? Yes, he does. In fact, he's the only one who truly sees it as it is. And he searches the heart for repayment. And for the one who does not know Jesus, that is a frightening reality. Question six, what is the greatest need of the human heart? We're going to look at this from, we're going to, first let's turn to Deuteronomy 10 and be there. And we're going to look at this from two perspectives, actually. First, we're going to ask, what is the need and who is responsible for meeting that need? And then in part two, is God's promise to do for man what he can't do for his own part? So we go back to the beginning of our Bibles as we answer the question, doing our survey of the heart. So in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16, Moses is talking to Israel. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Skipping down to verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants before them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses reminds the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator, God of the universe, has given them with himself. He has set his affections on them and requires them to love him, to walk with him and serve with him with all of their heart. And then in verse 16 he says, So, circumcise your heart and stiffen your heart no longer. Their hearts needed circumcision, and they are commanded to do it themselves. It's their responsibility to cut away all that's evil, all that's keeping them from loving God rightly. You are the responsible one, sinner. Now, Jeremiah 4, verse 4 and uh, 14. This is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel, and God is still saying the same thing. Verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a command. Again, he's telling them to do it. Or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's saying to Israel, there needs to be a radical removal, a circumcision of all that's wrong in your heart or judgment will come. It's a serious need and I hold you responsible. Imagine if that baby in Delhi, if the doctors had told him, fix your heart, little one, get that heart back in its place. It's impossible. And Jeremiah 4, 14, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. Why? That you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will you keep being this way? It's already been a thousand years. He is commanding here the very thing we saw in Proverbs 29, that we can't do, wash your hearts. And yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the greatest need. It's a radical, it's a, it needs a radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he is placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Why does God do that? Well, Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32, listen as I read. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. They had to be thinking, God, you want me? 
to make the most important part of who I am before you, who I am at the very core, the part of me that burns all my thoughts and emotions and desires and words, that part of me you never overlook, you want me to do this? Seeing a Jew, a Jew had to ask this question upon hearing this, and the answer is yes, the command is do this. That would be very uncomfortable to hear, and that was intentional. They needed to be uncomfortable with this command. Why? Because God was pointing to their need for a Savior, one that would purify their hearts. And listen as I read Joel 2, 12 through 13. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. He's saying, return to me with deep sadness for what you have made of yourself. Tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are. Show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. And we see the same idea in the New Testament, just so that we understand this is a New Testament command at a certain level for the believer. It's a new, con- uh, I'm sorry, it's a mixed condition command. We'll see that even in the New Testament, the command is the same, but we will see that as a new creation, there's a huge difference in the command. We have a new ability to purify our hearts, to renew our minds. Let's turn to James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've seen the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed. And man is commanded to do it. It's our responsibility. Now, the second part of that is having seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, and that man is responsible for that, man is incapable. Now we go back and look at question six from a different angle. Part two says what God promises to do for man that he can't do for his own heart. Again, back in Deuteronomy 30. Here is where we find the gospel of grace running all through scripture. Here is our hope, our only hope. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, and especially verses 1 and 6. And I'm going to just read those two. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, Jumping down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. The old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From its earliest days, from the giving of law, when God was setting up covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was able to do everything that God said. God gave a command to circumcise, and now he says, I'm going to do it. So why did God give the command if he was the only one who could do it? He says, you, Israel, are responsible for this heart, and the burden is on you. However, I will do it because he's a merciful God. The command was not given because we could do anything about it, but to highlight the responsibility to change it. The unbeliever hears this. And being led by the Spirit, he says, I can't do that. How will I do that? And God says, I will do it for you. That is the gospel message. Let's turn to Psalm 51.10 together. David, who lived under the Old Covenant, felt the tension. He knew God's evaluation of the heart, and he knew God's promise for the new heart. And he cries out to God to do that in Psalm 51.10. 
Remember, this is after the sin of Bathsheba. He cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you hear how deeply he felt that tension? He knew it was beyond his uh, ability, so he's crying out to the Creator to do in his heart what must happen, yet that he was responsible for. He's crying out at the heart level. When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Do you see his kindness, his love? Do you see the provision he's made for our hearts? In Luke twenty-two fifteen, it's the beginning of a promise being fulfilled to them. He says, here we find Jesus the night before crucifixion, and he's eating the Passover with his disciples. And he says in Luke twenty-two fifteen, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with, your, with his disciples. I'm sorry, let's skip there. Um, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You can see that the cross is on his mind. That's where Jesus is focused. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink this cup from now until the kingdom of God comes. He's making it clear that his death is imminent. So he goes on, and Jesus is taking the Passover supper, transforming it into what has become for us a remembrance of his death. So looking at Acts 2, I think um, this is after Christ's death. The blood of the new covenant now has been shed. The Holy Spirit had come on the disciples, speaking in tongues, speaking great things of God. So they want an explanation. So Peter gets up, and he gives his first sermon. This is what he says for the conclusion in verse 36 of Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He's Lord, he's Messiah, and those listening to Peter were the ones who crucified him. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. The heart is changed at the piercing, at the preaching of the gospel. They were pierced at the heart. They were wounded deeply. They experienced conviction at the level of the heart as the gospel was being shared. So we saw that the greatest need of the heart is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. What does God's command sinners to do something with their hearts they can't do? Again, it's because it puts the accent and emphasis on our responsibility. And the way that heart changes is he pleads his own ability to change. He's cut to the core, and he cries out to God through Christ and trusts in the work of Christ on his behalf. We're responsible for the unregenerate man. God does the work. He reveals a need for a Savior and gives understanding that we cannot accomplish this on our own. I can't change this. I can't, I can't wash myself. Now this one trusts in God, in Christ's finished work on the cross, in the sinner's place. So we are responsible for what we have become. We are responsible to do something about it. That doesn't hinder God in his process of doing what the sinner, for the sinner, what he can't do himself. Because it makes the one who is working in with his spirit say, I can't. Will you please do it for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves and, and realize that our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our heart is and how deceived we are at the inner man. And when one sees that and God says, you're responsible, the unbeliever cries out, God, save me. 
I'm done with myself. I'm done trusting in my own righteousness. I put my trust in you. That's the gospel. It's why Jesus shed his blood, to pay for all that we're responsible for, that we can't pay ourselves, which some will pay for eternity in hell. But he suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the inner man level, at the heart level. That is good news. We have a new heart. What a great God we serve. What a mighty, mighty Savior he is. In his word, he paints for us a very, very dark picture of who we were, and then he brings light. And we need to walk ourselves through this over and over and over again. And we need to grab our sister, and we need to remind her of that truth as well. Go through this journey over and over and over again, all the time. Look who God has made me. Look where God has brought me. My great God and my Savior, he has transformed my heart. He has done the work. And one more quick through from Deuteronomy 6. Um, Number 7. What is the Lord's provision for our hearts that need to change or have been changed? Let's see what God says. Back to Deuteronomy. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So they would have been thrust up against this. Like, how am I supposed to love God like that, right? Well, it's our wellspring purpose. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is God's provision for our heart, day to day. His word, that we would have his word pushed up against our inner man. Ezra 7 talks about, um, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, to teach its statutes. It's the Old Testament version of shepherding my heart. Ezra knew he needed his heart to be in contact with God's word. And so we need to ask, do we really understand, do we really believe that our hearts need to be near God's word? Or do we understand how badly? The psalmist in one Psalm, in psalm 119 knew, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. God's word is a treasure. And the psalmist esteemed the word. It's his treasure and it's what he values. running out of time. So this is God's design for his word with us, that it would come near our hearts and that we would allow him, allow it to be a surgical tool, to allow it to reveal my thoughts, my intentions, what's going on in my heart. This is the only way we will ever be able to discern what's going on in there. The word must be in full contact with our hearts continually and constantly, realigning my heart in my mind with his word. What happens when we don't read for a day or two or three or weeks? Or you read your Bible but fail to engage? We should be terrified by that. Will we naturally grow spiritually? Absolutely not. We will drift from him. It's God's provision for us. As women who have been born again in our mixed condition, we can still be deceived. But what is different is that this new inner man has been given a new capacity by God for God to know him and to love him, to pursue and obey him. But he tells us that we still have to watch over our heart. And we won't be done until we die or Jesus comes back. So the point is, if we understand who we are in Christ, what he's made us into, if we understand the nature of our heart, then we'll recognize our need for the word of God. More than we need anything else in the world, we will treasure it. We need to bring the sinner man in full contact with God's word. And we need to do it prayerfully and worshipfully. We're going to keep talking about that. 
in a way that is dependent on him, to reveal himself to us through his word. Let's pray. God, we give thanks to you that you have done for us what we could not do on our own. We had a heart of stone, and you have come, and you have given us a heart of flesh, a heart that will love you, that desires to follow after you. Lord, you have, in your sovereignty and in your wisdom, have left us in a mixed condition that we might better display your glory. Anything good that we see in one another is because of your grace in us. And Lord, we just praise you for that. We thank you for the good work in us. Lord, we understand that we need you. Apart from me, we can do no good thing. Lord, I pray that you would feed our hearts as we bring our hearts near your word. And on the mornings when we wake and we feel cold toward your word, may you warm us. May you ignite a fire in our hearts for you. Lord, we need you in every way, and we give glory to you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.